morning, and uh, thank you very much. Um, I've just got back from a, a holiday and feeling very refreshed, and also promised myself I wouldn't say anything about the World Cup, um, except to say, don't cry for three Argentina. Which I didn't think of, but I did think it was a good enough joke to be worth sharing. And I know that William and others, it may be very painful to hear. Um, but uh, yeah, we were grieving with you. Uh, we're we're going to be in the book of Exodus again this morning, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, if you have a Bible. We're going to be in a few different chapters looking at, at Israel at Sinai. Um, and so what we're going to do, just to, I want to summarize what's happened. If you... The whole series is a series on the Exodus story, and we've been looking at the way that God draws us out to draw us in. That is, God gets us out of slavery, he gets his people out of captivity in Egypt, but he does that with a purpose, to draw us into relationship with him, friendship, to teach us, to, to, to provide for us, to allow us to be his people, and that's what God is trying to do. And so the second half of the series is less about the rescue and more about what happens straight after the rescue. But uh, if, you, if you aren't familiar with the story, this map may help you, because this is like the whole narrative in a map. There are some guesses on the map, some question marks, because no one quite knows where some of these places were. But Israel has been redeemed from slavery in the top left-hand corner of the map. Um, by the blood of the Passover lamb, they have passed through the Red Sea and seen their enemies drowned in the sea behind them, celebrated, and then gone on a journey heading southeast to the bottom of the map, for about seven weeks. And over that seven weeks, they've had a number of experiences that you've heard about in the last couple of weeks. So through what Phil was preaching and what Hillary preached on the stories of the, the, the manor and the water and the water for coming from the rock and the battle against Amalek and the healing of the water. And as they get down to the mount, point eight down, down there at the very bottom, Mount Sinai, they are now going to camp there for the rest of the book of Exodus and all of Leviticus and the first half of Numbers. So this is a hugely important part of their story as a nation, and therefore a hugely important part of our story if we're Christians. And the bit of the story where the Hollywood version stops is the bit we're going to be looking today. The Hollywood version of the story is Israel was being oppressed, and then they got out, and all the baddies died, and the goodies got out, yay, and then they arrived at a mountain, and no one really knows what happened next. At the end of the Prince of Egypt, that's what happens. Moses climbs up the mountain, spreads out his hands, and then the music goes, boom, and fades to black, and the credits roll. Because that's the bit that no one, no Hollywood people want to know about Israel being shaped as a nation and given the law. The writers of Scripture do the opposite. The writers of Scripture say, we'll give you 15 chapters on how they got out, but our focus, in large part, is going to be what happened next. What happened once Israel were taken out, and how they were then shaped and taught by God as a nation for the next three books. And so Israel's story in that sense is just beginning, even though the Exodus has in itself formally just ended. And it provides a really important answer to a really important question for us, which is an important question whether we are Christians or not. And that is really, what is the connection, if there is one, between my behavior and God's and relationship with God, if you want to call it that? What is the connection, if there is, between what I do and my relationship with God? And the answer is going to be found in really clear form in some of these passages we're going to read today. Does God require obedience to save us or not? And if he doesn't, what motive is there for us to do what's right? And if he does, how do you ever find the power to do what's right? There's important questions that you have actually, even if you're not a Christian. 
Because you might, a lot of people in this, you, you can probably imagine, in fact, extremes on this issue about the, the relationship between what I do and my relationship with God. The religious extreme is easy to see. People who would say, you have to do a certain number of things, you have to really do your best, work really hard, and then when you've done a certain amount, God goes, right, now I'm going to rescue you. Yay! That's, the, that's how a lot of people see it. You do these things, when you've done them, God will rescue you and you'll be fine. That extreme is quite easy to identify. It's often called legalism or Pelagianism in more formal terms. And you can see that. If you've seen, some of you here may have come from a context where that's quite familiar to you. At the same time, there's another extreme, which is more common amongst non-religious people, which is kind of the opposite. And that is, behavior doesn't matter at all. No, you don't have to do things in order to get God to rescue you. You don't have to do things at all. God loves everybody. He saves everybody. He doesn't care what you do. He might like you to do nice things, but it doesn't matter if you don't, and no one cares, and it makes no difference whether you do what's right or not. And that is an extreme known formally as antinomianism, or the idea that the, the law has nothing to do with anything. There's no moral obligations for the Christian. And actually, the Bible does neither of those things. The Bible does something that sounds a bit more complex, but is so much more liberating in affirming both that we do need to do certain things, but we do them in response to what God has done for us and not in order to get God to like us or save us. And so we're going to see how that works briefly in Exodus 19 and then move into Exodus 20. Here's Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 to 6. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now we're going to pause there for a moment because the sequence here is incredibly important for understanding Christianity or the Old Testament. Right? The sequence here, verses 4, 5, and 6, must be taken in the right order. And if they're shuffled around, you get a totally different kind of faith or religion. It begins with verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. Have we got that verse? And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Right? It begins in verse 4. God starts by reminding people of their rescue. It begins with rescue. You yourself, you've seen it. You've seen what I did. right? I brought you out of Egypt. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians. And now I've brought you to myself. God starts by reminding Israel of their rescue. And that has already happened. Right? This is in the past. We've got to get that. This has already taken place. Right? No expectations at this point. I've done this already. Then verse 5, you could call rules. That is, now, therefore, right? I've already rescued you. But now, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. So then he says, right, you, you now need to do some things that I've asked you to do. 
And you might want to call those rules. You might not like the word rules. That might sound heavy to you. I'm going to use that word because I think they are basically things that you should and shouldn't do if you are going to follow God. But you might prefer the word laws or commandments or covenant or obedience. But the point is, because I have rescued you, I'm now going to tell you some things I want you to do in response. The rules. And that is because I want verse 6 to come about. Verse 6 then goes on. You will be my treasured possession among all peoples. If you, so I've rescued you. I want you to do these things because if you do those things, you will be my treasured possession. You will be kings and priests to me. You will be a holy nation. And that's the hope that God had in rescuing Israel and in giving them rules. So the sequence here in Mount, at Mount Sinai goes, rescue, then rules in order that relationship. I've saved you, I'm telling you some stuff to do, and I'm doing that because I want you to be in friendship with me. I want you to get me, I want to be with you, I want you to know me and experience my presence and love. And that's the sequence, that, and that sequence is very important, and we're going to see it again in Exodus chapter 20. So if you now flick over the page, Exodus 20, this passage will be a bit more familiar, probably, and my guess is even if you don't normally come to church, you will know at least some of the next few verses, even if you don't know you know them. Because this is the Ten Commandments, right? Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above, or that's in the earth beneath, or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, Six days you shall labor, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, female servant, livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall, not ste- you, shall not, sorry, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, whose ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of God. The Ten Commandments have almost been too successful. They've become so well known as a summary statement of Jewish and Christian morality that people forget that they are given to a nation who have just been brought out of slavery for 400 years. Most people in this city have heard of the Ten Commandments. A lot of them would be able to mention what at least some of them are. Very few would have any idea that they were given to a nation immediately after being rescued from captivity to slavery. And that means that the laws can get separated from the rescue that we've just experienced. They come without context. Some of you will know, I mean, this happens all the time. Christians do it. There's a controversy every few years in the United States about whether or not you can put up uh, the Ten Commandments outside state courthouses. 
the kind of thing, sorry if you're American, the, the Americans like arguing about this kind of thing, and they, from time to time somebody does it, and then there's a big hoo-ha about it, and people are all shouting the Constitution at each other, and it all becomes a big thing. And so this would be a photo I found. I like the fact the American flag's just a little bit higher, indicating who's truly God um, in this situation. But anyway, um, again, apologies. America, it's 4th of July in three days, and I choose this Sunday to have a pop at America. But the, what they do, Ten Commandments, and then they, they start, this has been made, I assume, by a Christian, Number one, you have no other gods, but thou shalt have. It's always scarier in the King James. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that's not how Exodus 20 begins. And many of us didn't notice that. Many of us are accustomed to thinking the Ten Commandments begin with commandment number one, and they don't. And the people who wrote this stone didn't realize that. Or if they did, they didn't think it was important. I had the same thing. I went to a Christian school. And in my Christian school, there was three panels of wood at the back of the chapel, like the worship space. The central panel had a cross. And then over here, there was the Ten Commandments. And over there, there was the the rest of the Ten Commandments. And they do the same thing. They begin with number one, number two, number three. And that's not what Exodus does. And you probably notice some of you now looking at your Bibles. I hope, going, what does it do then? And that's good if you look around the room going, ooh, what does it say? This is what it actually says. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And do you see the difference? That instead of saying, here's all the things I want human beings to do, he says, I am the Lord your God who has already saved you. You were slaves. You couldn't do anything. You were empty and futile and you were being whipped to pieces and making bricks without straw. And I saved you because I loved you without you having done anything. Now, because I did, don't worship any other gods, please. Don't make images. Don't take my name. Don't cheat on people. Don't go and have sex with someone you're not married to. Don't kill people. But he's doing that not as a condition of their rescue, but because they've already been rescued. And a lot of people put these things up outside courtrooms and don't realize Some of us don't realize, and we've got to see the sequence, that rescue comes before rules. I saved, I delivered, I redeemed you and conquered your enemy for you. Now what I want you to do is to obey me, worship no other gods, don't make images, keep my holy day, and so on. And that sequence is just what we saw in Exodus 90. You have seen with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Now, keep my voice. And you'll be my treasured possession. Do you see the flow? Rescue comes before rules, not after. You switch those round, you have a totally different kind of thing. You don't have Christianity anymore. In fact, this is obviously this is the Old Testament. You don't have Judaism anymore either. The purpose of God in revealing it this way is to show people it's not because you did all these things that I saved you. I saved you and then said, here's what I want you to do. He rescues and then he regulates. It's not a condition of getting you out. It is a response to having been got out. And we've got to see that. Some of us, this is very familiar, but I hope to help us see how central it is to Christianity that rescue comes before rules. And often when I'm thinking about this, my mind goes to that scene at the end of Titanic 
which is a, a you know, I, I trust we all know that the ship sinks in the end. It's a straight, it's a kind of slightly implausible love story, and I say implausible partly because obviously the upstairs downstairs thing with Kate and Leo, but also partly because at the very end of the movie, a couple of very strange things happen that make you think that's not what really happens in love stories. For instance, Kate Winslet is sitting pretty on this enormous floating plank of wood. Leonardo DiCaprio is dying of cold, and she at no point says, "Do you know? Do you want to come up and sit on this massive plank with me?" She doesn't do that at all. She's like, "I love you, but not enough to share my massive plank with you." And and he dies. And then, did you notice that when he dies, he sinks? All the other dead bodies that sank from the Titanic came off the Titanic just bobbing around in the water like this. Because that's what dead bodies do. But Leonardo DiCaprio, the first and only human in history, sinks to the bottom of the ocean for no reason. And it's never explained. It's a ve- that's nothing to do with the message, but it is a curiosity, I think. But at the end of that scene, he's just gone down mysteriously into the depths, and she decides she does want to live after all. And so she starts going, come back. Come back, come back, come back, come back, come back. And she finds a whistle and she goes, rawr, 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 come back, come back. And then there is the, the Welsh lifeman, lifeboat guy. Do you remember him? There's, this is boat and the distance with a flashlight going like this. And you can just hear this voice. And my Welsh accent isn't great, so apologies if you are truly Welsh, but is there anyone alive out there? Is there anyone alive out there? And gradually in comes to focus this boat with this Welsh guy in the flashlight and she decides, yes, I do want to live and I want to get into the boat. Now, at that point, they get her out of the water straight away, put her in the boat. And I sometimes imagine, let's think that people had legalistic logic at this point. The Welsh guy looks at Kane Windsor and says something like this. Well, young lady, it's excellent. I'm very glad you want to be rescued. It'd be really well, wonderful to welcome you to our boat. But we do, first of all, before you get into our boat, we have a few house rules. There's one or two things that we ensure that everybody comes on the boat. And it's very important that you follow all of these rules. And I'm not going to let you in until you sign the piece of paper just to explain all. Health and safety is very terribly important. Like, so, for instance, we have a thermos. The thermos is communal. And so everybody can have a little bit of the thermos. But if you drink too much, then other people are going to go cold. There's only one blanket per person. Imagine he just goes on and on. She's going to be dead before she's in the boat. And so what you do is you rescue the person and then you tell them what you want them to do. And that's all, everybody knows that. We know. You, if you're a fireman, you, you don't go into a building and in, before deciding to rescue the person, say, here's why you really shouldn't leave candles below cloth. You save their life and then you tell them what they should do. It's actually, I think there's a more, even more powerful image for what happens to Israel here. Israel is being rescued and then taught how to live in the same way. I think there's indications even in the text that this is how the writer wants us to think of it. It's a slightly strange image if you have been present at a childbirth, as I have three times. And some of us, been, some of us do this for a living. We've been there a lot. And what I think what is happening in many ways is that the Red Sea journey, as Israel goes down this sort of long, narrow canal through water, is like Israel's birth as a nation. I really think this, and Scripture pictures it this way, the idea that Israel is being drawn out from, if you like, this sort of old world into a new one, and they're very, very young and very fragile, and God feeds them with very basic things. Obviously, we feed babies milk, but Israel is fed with manna and water, and then gradually, as Israel grows and gets strong, Israel is able to take on some expectations and is able to go in and win some battles and gradually but initially that's not where Israel is Israel is a fragile infant and you just imagine what would happen if we took the logic that a lot of legalistic mindsets do which is that you have to you imagine going up to the, the midwife you're a midwife here some of us are you go to the mother at this point and you start talking to the baby we are only going to let you out of your mother if you pray
promise to do everything we say. And this baby's like, oh, let me out, let me out. They go, no, 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 we're not going to let you out unless this, 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 this. These are all the rules. You never do that. What you do is you see, this child is incapable of doing anything at the moment. I am going to draw this child out through the waters. And then as they grow and get stronger, I will begin to teach them what is required and expected in order to live in response to this gift of life they've been given. But not in order to get it. The Ten Commandments are not given in utero, right? They're given to this person who's already growing and maturing. And it's so important that we see that that's the way God deals with us. He causes us to be born again first. We've done nothing. I haven't kept the rules. I'm inside, if you like, inside my mother, wrapped up and cramped and wrapped up like this. I've got no idea what to do. And God draws me out and gives me new life. And then God begins to teach and instruct and say, right, here's what it means to have no other gods. Here's what it means to have a marriage or a relationship to your neighbor or have a relationship to property and possessions that honors me rather than despises me. But I don't require to know all that, or let alone to do all that, before I get you out. I do want you to do it, though. But just when is crucial. And that's critical for us to understand because otherwise there is no hope at all. Because you and I both know, again, whether we're Christians or not, that if somebody came in front of us with this list of moral expectations only ever prioritize God, never do anything bad, and never even want to do anything bad, you and I would not have a hope of being able to do it unless God had saved us first. Some of you know I'm a title nut for the Heidelberg Catechism, as, as I'm sure we all are. It's a German 16th century question and answer document that teaches basically illiterate German peasants in the Reformation what the gospel is. In the fourth, they've got a hundred odd questions. The fourth one goes like this. What does God's law require? Answer, Christ teaches us in Matthew 22, love God and love your neighbor. Right? Pretty good answer. Question five, can you live up to this perfectly? Answer, no. I have a natural tendency to hate God and hate my neighbor. Does anybody else feel like that? That's true. That's, I went, when I first read that, I was like, that's gospel truth to me because it shows me that I cannot and will never be able to do the rules unless the rescue's happened already. And that's always been at the heart of Christianity because rescue comes before rules and not after. And that's why the Bible says things like, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And why it says, while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and ran towards him and hugged him and kissed him and killed the fatted calf for him. Rescue comes before rules. And that is made clear right at the beginning of the most famous rules of all, the Ten Commandments even if it doesn't make it onto the stone outside the American courthouse. But that is not where the Sinai story stops. There is rescue in order that, in, before rules, but those two things happen in order that we might be in relationship with him. All along, as we've already seen, that's been the hope. And we're going to jump forward to see that just once more to Exodus chapter 24 and read from Exodus chapter 24 verse 3. Because the goal of the rescue and the rules is to bring relationship. Verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the word of the Lord and all the rules. All we've skipped over, by the way, is a series of a few chapters of God giving some rules. Okay, And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. 
And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, it's on tablets at this point, I think, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. It's another one of those moments in the Exodus story which is so beautiful. I think it makes you serious. They beheld God. What did you do over your lunch break? Well, I had lunch with someone. What did you do over your... I had lunch with God. I, I sat and I stared at this pavement of sapphire that was as clear as the heavens and above it I saw God the immortal invisible only wise God who no one has seen or can see indescribable incomparable I saw him I had lunch in front of him and I ate and I drank and I just enjoyed the glorious radiance of the beauty of the Lord crashing over me with every wave of joy thinking this is the maker of the stars, the redeemer of Israel, and he's right here, and I get to see him, and that's where all of this stuff was going. Now, I've had a handful of moments in my life where I became acutely aware of the beauty and wonder of God, like sort of transcendent moments where you just can't say anything because you're so awestruck by God. I haven't had many. I've probably, I don't know, three or four. I remember being at a Bible week when I was in my late teens, maybe early 20s, it was like a classic charismatic thing, but just chaos, people lying all over, wailing and crying and laughing, all sorts of things. Just mad to an outlook, an outsider, I'm sure. But I remember hearing Ezekiel chapter 1 read, and I'd never, never heard it, didn't know it was in the Bible. Somebody just read the whole thing, and I was just over, dumbstruck. And if you know me at all, I'm really dumbstruck. Like, you have to hit me pretty hard to me to stop talking. And I'm listening to this thing, just thinking, this is... God is real, and he's here, and he's utterly glorious. I don't, I don't know what to do with myself except just stare in wonder. And I, so I had that, and I remember I had a, the opposite, actually, uh, in a very formal chapel at my college in Cambridge where the, the choir are singing the Agnus Dei to the tune of Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings, and this amazing noise. I mean, it's the Latin for Lamb of God, and it's all in Latin, but it's just singing of the glories of Jesus Christ in the most high kind of context way you can. And I was sitting there just... The wall of sound was like driving. I was thinking, I cannot fathom the majesty of Jesus that it would be expressed this beautifully... I've had a couple, maybe three or four moments like that. And you may have a handful, but I've never had a moment like this. I've never, all of those have been amazing moments and I love that I had them, but none of them are, I sat below a sapphire pavement and I saw God. I've never had that. But that astounding revelation they had was where all of the rescue and all of the rules, if you like, had been heading because God's purpose for his people was not rescue for its own sake, and certainly it wasn't rules for their own sake, but it was rescue and then rules and instruction in order that they might be in relationship with him, be his treasured possession, be the apple of his eye, be kings and priests and a holy nation. He wanted to change them one degree of glory into another by seeing him and becoming like him and to eat and drink with him. So when the book had been read, 
and the blood of the covenant had been poured out on the people, he invited 70 of them to come up the mountain and join him for lunch. Rescue, then rules, for the sake of relationship. But the relationship, even then, is kind of incomplete, don't you think? Because there's only 70 of them get to see it. All men, just the elders of the nation, right? Hundreds of thousands of people at the foot of the mountain, terrified out of their wits, 70 guys get to go up. It doesn't feel complete. It feels, doesn't it, like God has said, I want you to be my chosen people, my holy nation, and I'm only going to let 70 of you up because something is as yet incomplete here. Something has not yet been fulfilled. The book has been read, the blood of the covenant has been poured out, the meal has been provided, but only 70 of you can eat it. And that incompletion is going to hover over the Exodus story, and in some ways it's going to hover over the whole Old Testament. But the day will come when Israel's God will once again provide a meal for his friends. And the blood of the covenant will be poured out, not just for the 70, but for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's going to start with 12 sitting around a table. And they will behold God and eat and drink, even though they don't know that's who he is at times. I sometimes think that's what must have hit Thomas. Right, Eight days after Jesus rises from the dead, Thomas is there in the upper room and he sees Jesus and he falls. He says, my Lord and my God. I wonder if one of the things that went through his head was, I had dinner with God. Like I actually got to behold God and eat and drink with him. It starts with 12. Then a few weeks later, it's 120. And then it's 3,000. And then it's 5,000. Then it's millions. And now it's billions of us from every tribe and tongue and nation coming to the table of God, beholding God, and eating and drinking. The rescue and the rules have culminated in a relationship, which it turns out is something that the God of love has wanted for us from before the foundation of the world. And it is a beautiful relationship in which he does not ultimately make himself known to us in a tablet, but at a table. He doesn't just say, do this. He says, take, eat, and drink. This is my work on your behalf, my body, my blood. The rescue has come. The rules can and now be fulfilled. The relationship is consummated. Come and join the joy of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Come, eat and drink and behold Israel's God in fulfillment of everything these people wanted and everything your heart has ever needed. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we come to the table now, your presence would be thick and mighty in this room as we behold God. We would see God. We would see maybe visions, maybe words, maybe simply bread and wine. And as we behold those things, as we see you in what you have made, we would marvel, our jaws would fall open, we would behold the living God and marvel that a rescue has led to a relationship like this. Lord, we, we do, we, I want to be able to keep your rules. I want to be able to do what you want me to do, but I want to do it out of a place of having been rescued and with a goal of being in relationship with the living God who made the stars and is in this room now in bread and wine, in and by through his spirit as his word is read and explained. Lord, you are here and we ask, make yourself known to us. May nobody leave this building, whether they're in Christ or not, without experiencing something of the reality of the presence of God. Because your goal for us is for us to see you and eat and drink with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.